This morning we're going to continue in our series through the book of Acts. We're going to be reading several verses in your hearing uh, from chapter 13, just to set the context this morning for the preaching of the Word. So listen to this Word of God. Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And somebody ought to say amen. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses." Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets shall come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be laid, told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the living God. Thanks be unto God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we need you to speak to us. As all of us sit under the authority of your word this morning, Lord, we recognize that our hearts need to be transformed, our minds need to be transformed, our lives need to be transformed, and only you can do that work. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that as your word goes forth, as this preacher who you have called to preach your word preaches to your people, I pray that they would hear, and I pray that even the preacher would hear, and that you, Lord God, would do that work in all of us of making us more like your son and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen. So I'm one of those human beings that is directionally challenged. I have on several occasions found myself lost driving in my own hometown of St. Louis. Uh, my internal GPS is faulty at best and broken at worst. But I hear you saying, Pastor, that's why they put GPSs in cell phones and cars now. To which I say, sure, but since the voice guiding me often can't pronounce the street names right, it doesn't always do me a whole lot of good. When De Bolivar becomes De Bolivier, it's like, what city am I in? I hate being lost, though. The frustration of wasted time, the embarrassment of showing up late to an appointment, or the shame of having to call my wife again and say, where the heck am I? I actually stopped making those calls. Like, nope, I'll just figure it out myself. Which of course leads to more wasted time and embarrassment because I don't want to admit that my wife is simply better than me at knowing where she's going. But when I do finally figure it out, when I do finally figure it out where I am eons later, I realize that my lostness is often the result of making a wrong turn, heading in a direction 
contrary to where I want to be. Brothers and sisters, I want to convey to you this morning that we as God's church suffer at times from a faulty internal theological and missional GPS. I contend that where we are meant to be going is sometimes not the direction in which we are heading. As it pertains to the context of our story this morning, God's continued mission to draw the families of the earth, the nations of the earth into His body, we are, if we are honest, often found heading down roads that don't allow us to arrive at our destination. Indeed, like the story of your pastor, we are found wasting lots of time on roads that lead away from God's mission and that waste a bunch of time that should be used proclaiming the good news of, the, of God to the nations of the earth, showing how the Word of God, which leads us to Christ, is the answer to the questions of our world. It's puzzling to me, actually. It's puzzling to me how much time is spent trying to debunk cultural ideologies and systems of thought, and how little time is spent giving adequate answers to the questions those ideologies and systems of thought are raising. Indeed, I often know what we, what we believe we are against, but very little of what we are for on these matters. Whether we're talking about race, or class, or gender, or other dividing lines that the gospel has come to heal. The central point of the text in front of us this morning is actually found in verse 47. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And Paul is quoting from Isaiah, and the context is of the servant who will be God's agent of salvation to the world. Paul's preaching in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia makes clear that as the chosen king in the line of David, Christ is the light of salvation. And the implication that Paul is making in verse 47 cannot be clearer, that they, we, the church by extension, because of connection to Jesus, are those through whom that light of salvation shines into this world. What Christ is doing in and through His church as we preach the gospel concerning Him and as the nations come to put their hope in Him and are united in one family together, we are, He is shining that light of the glory of God into this broken world through His church as we give ourselves to that mission. And when we get off track, when we get off track, when we lose our way, when we get lost, it is due to our turning away from our identity and our calling, turning down other roads of identity and calling. In fact, to the degree, to the degree that we do not have adequate answers for the world is the degree to which we have not fully embraced this calling to be a light to the nations, pointing them to Christ who is the light of the nations. So what's the way back? How do we get unlost? Well, simply put, we have to turn around. We have to turn around. We have to turn back to the narrative of God 
as it has been laid out for us in the Word of God. And I want to suggest from the text this morning that there are two turns that have to be made. And these turns will not be surprising to you at all. They will both sound very familiar to you. However, as we flesh them out from the story, you will, I hope, see how profound both these turns really are. And the first is this, a turning toward Jesus as He is presented to us in the gospel. A turning toward Jesus as He is presented to us in the gospel. After John Mark's departure, Barnabas and Paul head to Antioch in Pisidia. And this isn't the same Antioch from which Paul and Barnabas were sent out, but another city by the same name. And while there, Paul and Barnabas do what has become their practice. They go into a synagogue, hoping to find their people who are receptive to the gospel message. And while they're sitting there, someone stands up to read from the Word of God, a reading from the Law and the Prophets. But seeing that they have a couple of visiting preachers, if you will, the rulers of the synagogue ask Paul and Barnabas to speak a word of encouragement to the people. And maybe at that moment, Barnabas leans over to Paul and says, it's your turn, bro, I did the last one. Either way, Paul gets up and begins to preach. And he starts to tell them a very familiar story, one the crowd, no doubt, has heard before. And this crowd, by the way, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles are probably split between two groups, proselytes, that is, those who have converted to Judaism, and God-fearers, those who fear, God, fear the God of Israel but have not yet fully converted. So Paul is preaching this very familiar story, and he is noting the major moments in the history of God's salva- salvific acts among His people. He is noting, if you will, the turning points of the story of God's salvation, those points at which God came in and changed the fortunes of His people, rescuing them from their enemies and from different circumstances. So he talks about God's rescue from Egypt, His rescue from the seven nations in Canaan. He's giving, he's, he talks about giving them judges to deliver them up until the coming of Samuel. And then he gives them talk about King Saul, whom he later removed, giving them their greatest king, David, a man after God's own heart. And if this was a black church, folk would be amen and as the narrative was laid out, as they were reminded of all the acts of God on, on their behalf, from deliverance from political powers, to deliverance from oppressive neighbors, to deliverance from homelessness and wandering, over and over God has shown Himself faithful. But then there's a turning point in the story, an unexpected twist. And for some in the crowd, the amen stopped. The shouts of, ain't he all right, are no longer heard. Some who were standing now sit down. The mood changes over some in attendance. Why? Because the preacher in verse 23 drops a proverbial bomb in the meeting by telling them that the fulfillment of all those acts of salvation and deliverance, the fulfillment of all those deliverers through whom God has worked His salvation on behalf of His people has come. And it has come in the one whom those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers put to death. It had come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It had come through the one of whom God spoke, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It had come through the one whom God promised, I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. It had come 
through the one whom God declared, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And here's the main point, the conclusion of, of the matter, if you will, summed up in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And here's the real question for us today. Hearing this again, this truth of the gospel again, in whom or in what are we trusting for freedom? In whom or in what are we trusting for justification? That is to be set right. You see, the law of Moses, when summed up, deals both with our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor. And our sins have ruined both those relationships. So who has the power to deal with both my personal sins and the impact of them on my relationship with God and others, but also our corporate sins and their impact on our relationship with God and with others? The answer is Jesus and only Jesus. Only Jesus can free me to love God the way I'm supposed to, and only Jesus can free me to love my neighbors the way I'm supposed to. Only Jesus can empower us to corporately love God in the way we're supposed to, and only Jesus can give us the power to corporately love our neighbors the way we are supposed to. Where we get off track is when we start looking for other justifiers in our relationship with God and with others. When our justifier is a political party, when our justifier is a faulty narrative of history, when our justifier is our national origin, when our justifier is our economic status, when our justifier is educational attainment, when our justifier is physical and verbal violence, when our justifier is our own righteousness, when our justifier is, 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 is our own standing, when we're justified by anything other than Jesus Christ, we are lost. We are lost. And the only way back is to turn in faith to the one through whom we are freed. Watch what the text says, from everything. <laughs> from everything that we could not be freed by the law of Moses or anything else. And so, putting our trust in those other justifiers will only lead to disaster, which is why Paul gives the warning he gives in verse 41 from the book of Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, if your trust, if your hope is in something other than God, and in this case, in Paul's preaching, something other than Jesus Christ, you're in trouble. So I just got a question for you this morning, people of God. Where are you tempted to turn for freedom outside of Christ? Where are you tempted to turn for freedom outside of Christ? Can I just talk to you this morning? Is it your political standing? Are you trusting that you are on the right side and everyone else is on the wrong side? In fact, how do you really view your brothers and sisters who don't share your view? Are they truly your brothers and sisters? Or do you consider them as second-class citizens in the kingdom? Can I tell you that answering that question 
will help determine whether we are truly finding our practical freedom in Christ or in a perceived political righteousness. Or maybe it's not politics that you look to as a justifier. Maybe it's your religious zeal. Perhaps you're like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, impressed by your own obedience and religious duty, your giving, your perfect church attendance, your theological acumen. And rather than holding these things with joy as reflections of a love of God, you hold them as markers of superiority over those around you who, consider, who you consider not as zealous. God, thank you that I'm not like this publican. Thank you that I'm not like this person who doesn't go to church as much as I do. I'm not like this person who knows how to dot all their theological I's and T's. I, I'm not like this person who doesn't give as much as I do. I'm not like this person. Hmm. Can I tell you this morning, remind you again what the Apostle Paul says, that freedom, justification, and our relationship with God comes not from our perceived political righteousness, our religious righteousness, or any other righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ imputed to us freely on account of Christ's work of righteousness on our behalf. He fulfilled the law of Moses in full that we might be freed from its penalties and enabled to live out God's righteous, righteous law through the work of the Spirit. Nothing else justifies you other than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who gives you righteousness, imputes it to your account, even though you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have nothing to offer to God that He will look at and say, look, that person is really, really good at that. That person is really, really zealous at that. That person gives really, really… You have nothing to give to God. You're not going to get to the gates of heaven and God says to you, man, you know what I'm so glad about? You weren't like those other fools. I mean, all your stuff was tight. Your theology was tight. Your political perspective was tight. Your giving was tight. Your, your, your church attendance was tight. Your devotional life was tight. Man, you know what? You, you're the first person getting in here who didn't really need what I had to offer. Because you're so good. The Apostle Paul looked at his brothers, men like him, who were zealous for the law of God. Paul himself, giving his credentials, circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, righteous, as to zeal, persecuting the church. Wasn't nobody better than me. And when I looked at myself in the face of the righteousness of Christ, here's what I realized. I couldn't be freed by anything other than by the righteousness of Christ on my behalf. And in Him, you are freed, listen to this morning, from everything. You know how much everything is? 
Everything. You are free from everything from which the law of Moses could not free you. You know what really is going to draw the nations to the people of God, to the church? You know what's really going to draw the nations into the church? Coming here and realizing that we are a people who have found our righteousness in Christ alone and not in anything else. Amen, people of God. So that first turn, when you get off track, is a turning back toward Jesus. A turning toward Jesus as He is offered to us in the gospel. But that second turn is a turn, a turning, if you will, toward the nations as the focus of our mission. A turning toward Jesus for justification and freedom, a turning toward the nations as the focus of our mission. Paul finishes the sermon, and some of the folk who were following the sermon and impacted by it asked for he and Barnabas to come back on the following Sabbath. The preacher got invited back. Indeed, some were so impressed that they wanted to hear more right then, and they followed Paul and Barnabas and were encouraged by them to maintain their zeal in the grace of God. So the next Sabbath comes, and lo and behold, what started as a worship service is now broken out into revival. We're told in the text that the whole city came out to hear Paul the next Sabbath, a preacher's dream. <laughs> but as usual, opposition arises from, the, from among the ranks of the religious leaders who, seeing the crowds, are filled with jealousy and began to oppose the message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. As a side note, jealousy is a dangerous passion. Be careful about envying what God is doing in someone else's life or through someone else's ministry. Remind yourself when that envy rises up that this ain't about you. The last thing you want to do is be found standing in God's way when He is on the move. Side note. But what's that root of this, what's at the root of this jealousy of these religious rulers? The root of the jealousy is that they had been God's messengers of His salvific acts, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. They had functioned, even if poorly, as the light of revelation of God's glory to the nations. But now, here were Paul and Barnabas taking their place, stealing their shine, encroaching on their territory. Here were Paul and Barnabas removing them from the center of attention and placing the center of attention on Christ. And what happened when the center was shifted? What happened when Christ became the center of the story? The nation started listening, started paying attention to God's story. People came flocking to hear the story of God's salvation. Isaiah 49 happened where God tells His servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, when we prioritize ourselves, we will miss out on participating in God's mission. Let me say that again. When we prioritize ourselves, we will miss out on participating in God's mission. And what's His mission? His mission is the nations. His mission is redeeming the nations of the earth for Himself, working toward the end when Revelation 21-24 will come to pass, the dawning of this new city 
which is spoken of in this way, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. I was talking to someone about the church and, and cross-cultural ministry, and I said something like, our problem is not our theology, it is our application of our theological commitments. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this about the visible church, the church the world sees. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. We believe that the church is not confined to one nation, that it consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. But then we create local versions of that visible church that look nothing like what our confession says, even when the world and all its diversity is right around us. Being a light to the nations means turning our attention toward them. And turning our attention toward them means decentering ourselves from the story and centering Christ. You got me? Decentering ourselves from the story and centering Christ. I, I believe that part of the reason the religious rulers love telling the story of the Old Testament is because they saw themselves, in some ways, at the center of that story. You're the center. God came for you. They started believing not only that God had come for them, but He had come, really in a way, only for them. And they forgot something that attached to their election, attached to their le election, is a purpose clause. <laughs> attached to God calling them out for Himself is a purpose clause. Attached to God making them His own is a purpose clause. Attached to God saying, you are the one in whom I delight. You are my beloved. Attached to all of that good news about God's love for them is a purpose clause. And that purpose clause is, I have called you out to be my own that you might be a light to the nations of the earth. I am going to shine the glory of my love through you to the world. Centering Christ doesn't mean turning to a colorblind ideology where we claim we don't see color but only Jesus and others. Centering Christ actually allows me to see people within their unique cultures as a beautiful display of the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God is not the obliteration of ethnicity, but God's ability to bring those ethnicities together into one family, growing and learning from each other by the power of the Spirit through the presence of Christ. I love that the confession says that the visible church is also the house and the family of God. Because that's the terminology. We're not an organization. We are the house 
and family of the living God, which means we should look like he says that family should look. Amen, people of God. No wonder when the Gentiles heard the quotation from Isaiah 49, they rejoiced. They had heard that story because they had come to the synagogue week after week after week, and they had heard the story, the narrative of how, how God was at work and how he had done all these salvific acts for the people of Israel. They had heard that story, and then Paul says, I came to tell you that all those salvific acts that he did for them, you're included in those salvific acts because God has not only come for them, he's also come for you, that he might bring you together into one family and make you a display to the rulers and authorities in heaven and to the rules and authorities on this earth of the manifold wisdom of God, his ability to create one new humanity out of all of the diversity. They learned that God was pursuing them and their cultures were not a barrier to God's salvation, but that God would, through them, among them, together with his people Israel, manifest to the church and to the world the good news of the glory of his gospel in the face of his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we need to turn toward the nations in mission? For some of us, this, works need, this work needs to take place in our attitudes. Some of us just need to deal with the jealousy in our own hearts. We see others being favored or assume they are being favored in some way above us, and we despise them. For some Jews at this time, Paul's announcement of God's turning and mission toward the nations caused jealousy, a jealousy that led to acts of persecution. But others who understood God's heart joined in proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles and joined the churches into which Gentiles were flocking. In order to do this, the it's about me mentality has to be abandoned. The it's about protecting ours mentality has to be abandoned. Because here's the thing, the church is not ours. I'm going to say that again. The church is not ours. It is the Lord's. The table around which we commune is not ours. It's the Lord's table. So if our practices in the church aren't welcoming to the nations, then they need to be abandoned. We have to stop saying, we have to stop saying the nations are welcome and then giving ourselves over to monocultural practices. We need to stop saying they're welcome and then doing things that don't display that welcome. We have to stop saying the nations are welcome only if they can think and speak and act, pray, preach, and worship like us. Turning toward the nations will mean learning from and including the cultural gifts of others into our life and worship. Amen, people of God. Two terms, a turning toward Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel and a turning toward the nations as our focus in missions. Jesus is the light of the nations. Through him, salvation comes to this world. Yet those of us who are put our faith in him are called out to be those through whom that light of the nation shines into this broken world. Now having heard what I just said, 
may we heed the words of the Lord in Matthew 5 and work to be this for our city and for our world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the, in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When that light that we are called to be is interpreted in context of what Christ is calling the church to be, a community of people across all the nations of the earth, when that light shines, then people can see the good news of the glory of the gospel, which is in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen, people of God. Amen. Amen. Let me, let me, let me, let me pray for us. Father, we see these things. We, we recognize in your word that this is who you called us to be. And, and we, we do, Father, we confess. Uh, we, we, get, we get off track individually. We get off track corporately. We take turns down roads, Lord, that do not lead to the destination of this mission you called us to. And Father, all of us, all of us in this room, your people across this city, across the world, we all have to acknowledge, Father, our our personal failures and our corporate failures to be what you called us to be. And yet, acknowledging those failures, we also have the truth of the Holy Spirit of God in us individually and working among us corporately to empower us to turn back when we turn off track, to turn back toward our identity and calling as your people. So I pray that for us. I pray that for, for all the, the, the individuals in this room. I pray that for, for New City Fellowship as a corporate body. I pray that for all of our other OPC churches, Lord. I pray that for all of our, our, our churches that are, that, that are bound together in relationship, Lord. I pray that for the PCA and the RPC. Lord, I just pray for all of your people in this reform setting. And I pray for all of your people in the Baptist setting, in the Methodist Pentecostal setting, Lord all of your people, I pray that you will enable us to be what you have called us to be. And I pray, I pray for all of us individually in this room, I pray that we will not find our freedom in anything else other than Jesus Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. I pray that we would not go looking to any other justifiers other than that righteousness that comes to us through Christ. And I pray that in mission, in mission, your church would learn how to turn to the nations, those nations around her in the places where you have set her and the nations of the world. Father, be at work through your church to be the light you are calling us to be, that our world may see you, who is the only King and Lord of all this world. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.